This is the second of four lectures that I'm going to give about the, uh, the definition of human nature, what it means to be human. And I've called the series How Not to Be Human because I'm interested in a range of thinkers, including a range of science fiction writers, who have tried to define human in opposition to something else. So last time we looked at apes and the big Victorian question of is man an ape an angel? What, if anything, separates us? Um, and today, I think perhaps a bit unexpectedly, women are being often offered as not human or different human in some sense. And looking at how and when that idea gets challenged is kind of the focus of this evening. Part of the context for that is thinking about the 18th century. Last time we, we started in the 19th, I've moved back a bit here, to think about notions of human rights, or as you can see here from the French declaration, les droits de l'homme, the rights of man. And that's the way that that argument was very often phrased at the time. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Um, and one of the things that that raises for many people is who counts as human under this definition. Now, Mary Robinson comes right at the end of the 18th century, uh, an English actress, a novelist. She's often known by her stage name of Perdita. And she wrote this letter to the women of England on the injustice of mental subordination. And in passing, she asks this simple question. Let me ask this plain and rational question. Is not woman a human being? Now, I hope that's kind of not up for debate today. But if we'd asked almost anybody in the two or 3,000 years before Robinson writes this, we'd have got a very clear answer. Of course not. Almost no great thinkers prior to the 18th century would have said yes. Uh, we look at Aristotle, for example, probably the single most influential philosopher in the Western tradition. Aristotle argues very explicitly that only a man can be the head of a household because only a man is capable of making free, rational decisions. Slaves are not free, so they don't count. Children are not mature enough yet, so they don't count. And women are too emotional to think rationally, or at least not as rationally as men. And so it is the right and duty of a man to rule over a household of others. And Aristotle's thinking becomes very, very popular and widespread across many centuries. And so, of course, it becomes kind of grafted onto uh, Christianity, onto the Judeo-Christian tradition. The story of Adam and Eve is the story of woman's supposed moral weakness, um, that it was Eve who was tempted, Eve who wasn't strong enough to say no. And because of that, uh, humanity falls uh, and all the, the, the sins and miseries of human beings are ultimately to, uh, women are to blame for them. So Aristotle's ideas mesh all too comfortably with that. And that becomes the standard answer for many, many centuries particularly in Europe, but other cultures have similar kinds of traditions. Now, one of the key Enlightenment philosophers I want to briefly talk about is Mary Wollstonecraft here. Uh, Mary Robinson dedicated her book to Wollstonecraft's memory. Wollstonecraft had died just a couple of years earlier. Um, and she is, I think, one of the key thinkers who takes hold of that notion of the rights of man and starts to think, well, what, what, let's think about this as universal human rights. So she asks... In what does man's preeminence over the brute creation consist? This is kind of the same question we were looking at last time in relation to apes. What makes us different to other animals? And uh, Wollstonecraft's argument is, the answer is as clear as that a half is less than the whole, in reason. And I'm sure you all know the 18th century, the Enlightenment period, is very often defined as the age of reason. And there, is, there are good reasons for that. This is the big theme that comes up again and again in the philosophy and the politics and so on of the time. What acquirement exalts one being above another? Virtue, we spontaneously reply. Well, perhaps they replied it a bit more spontaneously in the 18th century. I sometimes worry about it today. But um, that is the key thing. You've got to be a moral being. Um, and ultimately, for Wollstonecraft, that's because God created us with souls, with reason, with the ability to be moral and to make moral decisions. For what purpose were the passions implanted, our emotions, that man, by struggling with them, might attain a degree of knowledge denied to the brutes? So we alone have the ability to think for ourselves, and God has given us the duty and the possibility of arriving at virtuous decisions for ourselves, and that is what makes us human, in Wollstonecraft's view. Now, she admits fully that young children are very much at the mercy of their passions, of their emotions. They're not yet ready uh, to... Um, to reason for themselves and to come to virtuous decisions for themselves. So they need strict rules to follow. That's how you raise children in her book. And education will gradually turn them into independent, virtuous, rational thinkers, but only 
if they're male. She says girls are taught only to please. They're taught how to improve their lot in the only way women can rise in the world, by marriage. And she feels that women are, are stifled and crippled by the way that they're raised in her day. Uh, and that, that desire and that duty to please men and to win yourself a nice rich husband and improve your status in the world is the only skill that girls are taught. And that this prevents them from actually being the kinds of creature that God intended them to be. A, a virtuous, intelligent person able to make rational decisions and arrive at moral decisions. And the target of her book in many ways is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who again, we talked about last time in connection with his ideal vision of the ape. He's also well known as the key progressive theorist of education in Europe at this time, particularly because of a novel called Emile, where he sets out the program for Emile's ideal education, what a, a young man should learn. But he also has a chapter about what the ideal spouse should learn. And one of the themes that's gonna kind of come up uh, repeatedly in this lecture is the notion of what would the ideal woman be like usually in the eyes of men. Um, and uh, according to uh, Rousseau, the main distinction between men and women is that one ought to be active and strong, the other passive and weak. God, guess, guess which one gets which role. One must necessarily will and be able, and it suffices that the other put up little resistance. Um, and this was what really riled Mary Wollstonecraft, this notion that women were going to be trained and equipped, as so we would now say, that they were socialized into this role of passivity uh, and uh, an inferior role within society. This is what Emile looked like in its first edition. So Wollstonecraft quotes Rousseau against himself. She says that Rousseau says, it's a farce to call any being virtuous whose virtues do not result from the exercise of his own reason. And since that's Rousseau's opinion respecting men, I extend it to women. The same rules about being made by God, being created with these divine gifts, apply equally. Um, and that education is there, as I say, to cripple women rather than to give them opportunities. According to Wollstonecraft, society leaves women little better off than enslaved Africans, subject to prejudices that brutalize them in order to sweeten the cup of man. And the image is a very precise and carefully chosen one because, of course, sugar is one of the most precious commodities produced by enslaved labor. Uh, and the conditions, I mean, all the conditions for enslaved labor are horrifying. Sugar is probably the worst. Working on a sugar plantation is the absolute pits for an enslaved person. Uh, and uh, she talks in an earlier book, The Vindication of the Rights of Man, that slavery is incompatible with the principles of Christianity, precisely because Africans like women, have been created by God. So you can see here a kind of argument for taking that notion of rights and extending it in all kinds of ways where the mostly white male framers of these concepts really probably hadn't intended them to go. Um, and it's worth just thinking again a little bit about the historical period of this. In 1791, the slaves in what is then Saint-Domingue, the single most precious um, of all the France's colonies in the Caribbean, it's now called Haiti. The reason it's called Haiti is the slaves rose up and overthrew uh, the, the slave-owning administration at the time. And this is one of their, uh, the leaders, one of the generals of the slaves, Jean-Baptiste Belly, and he's painted here in the uniform of a kind of French Republican general, and he's leaning on a bust of the Abbe Reynal. And Reynal wrote a famous book called The History of the Two Indias, the Leaders and, where he argues against slavery. And this picture by a European artist is kind of implying that the achievements of the uh, African descended people of Haiti rest literally on the great thoughts of white men. But actually, when you read this history, it's clear that's a very partisan and limited view. What is actually happening in many cases is that the people of African descent are appropriating European ideas for their own purposes and their own agendas and interpreting them in ways that suit them. There's one lovely anecdote from this of a plantation owner who's driven off his plantation by his slaves, and when he gets back uh, after the slaves have retreated uh, and finds the whole place has been burnt to the ground, the only thing left standing is his reading room and they've left his copy of Reynal open at the page where it describes the horrors of slavery. <laughs> so, it, you know, this is not a kind of, you know, they were copying the French. It's not a reasonable interpretation, but they do influence the French hugely. So, uh, Belly here is one of a delegation from Saint-Domingue. After they've liberated themselves and declared their allegiance to the revolution, they then head off to Paris. They arrive there a couple of years later, 
And after receiving them and hearing about their heroic battles against the enemies of the French Revolution, the convention, the national parliament declares, all men without distinction of color will enjoy the rights of French citizens. And for a few brief years, slavery is abolished right throughout the French empire, abolished by that slave result. So there's a whole number of strands that are coming together to make this notion of human rights into a genuinely notion of human rights. The other connection with today, which obviously is important to think about, is Mary Shelley, Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter. Um, and I'm sure nobody here needs to be reminded of her most famous book, Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, 1818. It takes up several of the ideas of her mother's work um, and applies them to its fictional creation. And one of them is that she's, uh, Wollstonecraft, the mother, argued that all people have the right to recognition, to respect, and to parental care. And, that, and she actually writes about the miseries of the world. Many of them are caused really by parental neglect. And one of the ways that the story of Frankenstein's creature is that Frankenstein is his parent and then abandons it and leaves it to, go miserable, to, to become miserable. And so you can see the working out of these ideals in, in Mary's book. The other thing, of course, that's really important about this is that uh, the creature is made by a man. It's no, not born of any woman. And so he has usurped the traditional role of women, the right to give birth, the only power that women have that men don't have, and taken that for himself. This is a kind of blasphemy, uh, and everything that happens to him is in some ways a punishment for breaking that divinely ordained order. But the notion of making an artificial person, and particularly for a man to make life without the help of women, is of course going to be a very powerful and important idea throughout the history of science fiction, and we'll come back to that a little bit. So Frankenstein is often identified as the first science fiction novel, and one of many people who've made that argument is Brian Aldous here, a well-known British science fiction writer, but he wrote one of the first big histories of science fiction. Um, and he, amongst other things, tries to define science fiction. Science fiction is the search for definition of man and his status in the universe, which will stand in our advanced and confused state of knowledge, science, and is characteristically cast in the Gothic or post-Gothic mold. This becomes a classic standard definition. And I just want to draw your attention that we're looking for definition of man. Now, this book is about 50 years old, and this kind of usage is a bit old-fashioned now, so I'm not going to you know, give all this too hard a time for it. But I think that that's a very common usage then, and it's been a very common usage for many centuries, and it's by no means out of disappeared completely now. And I think it does, perhaps unconsciously, buy into that assumption that people like Aristotle are making that the ideal form of a human being is a male human being, and that a female human being is somehow less than a male human being. Again, if we go back to the book of Genesis and the Garden of Eden, Eve is made from Adam's rib, a second kind of addition to the human family, not the original primordial form. And so it's worth thinking about what the implications of that are and how they work out through later writing. My um, friend and colleague, Roger Luckhurst, coined this very useful phrase, conditions of emergence, in his book on science fiction, which I recommend very highly, where he talks about why science fiction comes into existence at a particular time. And among the things he points, at, uh, points out are things like the, the industrialization of publishing and communication in the 19th century that creates mass literacy and a genuine mass market for fiction. Um, and Darwinism is another condition and so on. But I want to say that perhaps um, it, it's, it, we could say that feminism is actually part of that too. Because I think Wollstonecraft writes in some ways like a science fiction writer. She asks, what if? What if we were to treat women exactly the way we treat men, educate them in exactly the same way, strengthen their minds, strengthen their ability to make decisions, and then see what kind of society we would have? And she, what, can, what would the world be like? She actually is very open about the fact she doesn't know because there is no model for that. There is actually no existing feminist movement that she can point to, as later feminist thinkers can, and say, look, here are some great, empowered, liberated women. There are really very few of them around in the 18th century. But she wants to open that question up, and it's a question that refuses to go away. And of course, Mary Shelley, we remember in particular for that idea of the artificial life form. And one of the things I'm gonna look at today is how these questions work out when it comes to creating new life uh, and particularly the idea of creating perfect women, because of course one of the things that happens in the Frankenstein story is that Frankenstein refuses ultimately to create a mate for his creature. He refuses to allow it a family and the chance to reproduce and so on. So who controls reproduction and where it's controlled is one of the elements that's going into the story. So the next section I want to talk about is the idea of living dolls. I will explain the origins of this bizarre creature um, as we go along. 
Um, but one of the first stories that I'm going to discuss is uh, by E.T.A. Hoffman um, called The Sandman. And um, this is a frankly bizarre kind of gothic tale. It's full of dark elements of alchemy and all kinds of strange occult elements. I'm only going to pick out one or two because I think they're particularly kind of relevant and useful here. So one of the things is that Hoffman, like many science fiction writers, tries to root his tale in the science of his day. So the main character in the story is a young student called Nathaniel, and he goes off to study at a university where his teacher is called Spallanzani. Uh, and I, I think the missing L in the, in the book is perhaps you know, just to avoid being prosecuted by the real Spallanzani, because there really was a Spallanzani. Maybe his family would have come after Hoffman with a, with a writ, or maybe it was just a slip, I don't know. But the real philosopher, Lazarus Spallanzani, a very interesting figure, who worked on various aspects of the origin of life, what causes life, and he's actually one of the first people ever to do experiments with artificial insemination. So he has a kind of interesting part to play in the story of creating life. Um, he's also interesting because Luigi Galvani, another Italian, dedicated his famous book on animal electricity to Spallanzani, and I'm sure you've, you've heard of these. Galvani does these famous experiments where he runs an electric current through the severed legs of a frog and makes it twitch. And he's one of the people who begins to prove that nerve impulses are electrical and links the worlds of electricity um, with, with the world of life, of biological things. Um, and the word, you know, he's, the galvanized is the word we get from him, but he's one of the people who invents some of the basic electrical technologies. And those experiments that he does are done in even more dramatic forms by another Italian, Giovanni Aldini, who actually manages to briefly reanimate a corpse with electricity. You can just imagine this is a kind of big show. You want to do, pop, you want to do the, kind of the Gresham lectures of the 18th century. You wheel on a corpse, you put 50,000 volts up it, and it sits up. And you can just imagine the impulse, the, the impact that has. It's demonstrations like that that directly inspire Mary Shelley. And of course, in the stories, I'm sure you can remember, it's putting the voltage through this creature that's being assembled from dead bodies that brings it to life. So that notion of electricity as life is one of the ideas that runs through this. So despite the fact that Hoffman's story has lots of obviously fantastic magical elements, there is still this element of science that gives it an aura of plausibility, and it's very current science at the time that he's writing. If we come back to the story, one of the things that happens in it is he falls in love with the Professor Spallanzani's daughter, Olympia, who is tall, very slim, perfectly proportioned, and gorgeously dressed. Um, her dancing is absolutely perfect, but has a disconcerting exactitude of rhythm. And her conversation is distinctly limited. Literally, all she ever says in the book is, ah, ah, ah. And when she does this, he says, ah, oh, you're such a profound soul. You understand me perfectly. You know, so she's, she's a good listener. Uh, and his friends are a lot rather bemused by this when they meet the, the love of his life. Uh, one of them describes her as a waxed-faced doll who moves as if controlled by clockwork and whose singing has the unpleasant, soulless regularity of a machine. Nathaniel is not having any of it. Um, he loves her, and one of the things he loves is that she refrains from the dull chatter which amuses shallow natures. So while he's reading his great poetic thoughts to her, uh, unlike his his fiancée, Clara, who is, he's gradually losing interest in, Olympia listens to everything he says. She never contradicts him. She never interrupts him. She never fidgets. She never looks out the window. She never plays with her puppy. She just goes, ah, 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 at the end of every great insight. Um, you can kind of see where this is going, can't you? So this sinister figure from Nathaniel's childhood, the Sandman, Capelius, reappears in later, or Nathaniel thinks he does. It's one of the many mysteries of this. He claims he owns Olympia. And he and Spallanzani fight over her, and when Nathaniel rushes in to find out what the racket is, he sees all too clearly that Olympia's deathly white face possessed no eyes. Where the eyes should have been, there were only pits of blackness. She was a lifeless doll. And there's an interesting kind of marriage of, of slightly occult arguments about the nature of life, very much Spallanzani's area, with the very major 18th century obsession with automata like this one, artificial uh, mechanical creatures that could mimic human movements. I'm going to talk about this a bit more in the next lecture, which is about robots, and that'll be one of the connections between the, the story. But it's interesting that Olympia's a doll, but she comes to life when she has eyes, and it's not clear if the eyes are stolen human eyes or whether they're artificial eyes, but they are alive in some sense that the body is not. And of course, we know traditionally the eyes are the window of the soul. There is some kind of element of magic, but there's also some kind of element of what we would now call cybernetics, of a marriage of, of mechanical and biological technologies in this figure. 
And, and Spallanzani's his colleagues are outraged that he's tricked them, that he's introduced this girl to them as his daughter. Um, but some of them claim they were never fooled. Uh, they noted, for example, that Olympia never yawned because um, she's such a good listener, she was never bored. But she did sneeze a lot, and they think that was to hide the sound of the clockwork being wound at regular intervals. And Hoffman concludes his story, I think, with a lovely passage that I'll, I'll, I'll share with you. There stealthily arose, in fact, a detectable mistrust of the human form. That to be quite convinced they were not in love with a woman with a wooden doll, many enamoured young men demanded that their young ladies should sing and dance in a less than perfect manner. And that whilst being read to, they should knit, so play with their puppy, and so on. So there's a nice notion that one of the things that makes you human is being imperfect, which I think is rather nice. But Hoffman goes on, above all, that the young ladies should not merely listen, but sometimes speak too. And in such a way that what they said gave evidence of some real thinking and feeling behind it. Many love bonds grew more firmly tied under this regime. Others, on the contrary, gently dissolved. But to counter any kind of suspicion, there was an unbelievable amount of yawning and no sneezing at all at the tea tables. <laughs> and, I, and I think one of the things Hoffman opens up in this kind of fascinating story is the idea of femininity as a performance. A performance that, frankly, only men can judge, but one that has to be done well enough, but not too well. And that's an idea, again, that we'll come back to. The other 19th century story I want to briefly touch on, I'm, I'm cherry-picking, obviously, from a vast corpus of possible works here. This one, Les Futures of Tomorrow's Eve by Villiers de Lille Adam, um, an impoverished French aristocrat who supported himself by writing. I, I, I do wish we lived in an age when anyone could support themselves by writing, but there you go. Um, this is a, frankly, really strange book. Um, this is the modern translation of it, which I recommend, although it is, frankly, barking. In it, we have a fictionalized version of the then still living and very real Thomas Edison, the inventor, American inventor. And in the story, he creates a perfect woman for his friend, Lord Ewald. And Ewald is in love with Alicia Clary. And the problem is that uh, Alicia Clary's mind is as banal and tedious as her body is perfect, in Ewald's view. And so he wants, he said, I wish somebody could take the soul out of this body and give it a better one. And Edison says, great, I'll do that. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that he's already made an android, and this word is already being used in French in the 19th century, which is kind of interesting. The android is called Hadley, and Edison is going to modify her so she looks exactly like Alicia. And one of the many inventions that Edison is associated with in real life is photography, and he basically describes the android as being like a photographic plate. He will expose it to Alicia's um, image so that she will be transformed into an indistinguishable replica. And there's a lovely story where, you know, you will just constantly, yeah, but she'll still be just a boring doll, and Edison explains how he's going to make this, this impersonation totally convincing. Instead of Alicia's mind, the android has got two phonographs, another great Edisonian invention, um, unparalleled fidelity, and they're made from virgin gold, according to the text, because it yields a more feminine resonance. And on these discs, on these phonographs, Edison has recorded the greatest thoughts of the world, which of course means male thoughts, and he's actually paid various geniuses to give him the copyright to their as yet unpublished insights so that the new android will be able to keep up that flow of kind of witty and intelligent conversation as if she were a man because she's loaded with male thoughts, but she will do exactly what Alicia, her, her, her living prototype, can't. Edison claims, he, claims that he will replace an intelligence with intelligence itself. And, and one of the many things that's going on here is the notion of what, what the ideal would be like. And the other great Greek philosopher, obviously, who's in the frame here is Plato, Aristotle's teacher, that notion of the platonic form, the perfect original form of something, of which what we see around us are, are mere fake, uh, weak copies, is one of the things that's building in here. We'll take an intelligence, a specific input, replace them with intelligence itself. Now, if we turn to the real-life Edison for a second, this is him at work. Um, rather lovely, one of the things he, he embraces with great enthusiasm is the time clock, and he carries on going to his factory and clocking in and out every day right to the end of his life, even when he's a kind of multimillionaire. He registered over a 1,000 patents in his lifetime, and he expected his staff to come up with a minor patent every 10 days and a major one every year. So the whole place is an inventing factory. Um, and the, uh, he works at a place called Menlo Park in New Jersey, and he's known as the Wizard of Menlo Park. So there's this aura of magic that surrounds the real-life Edison. So he's not that different from the one in the book in, in some strange ways. Um, 
Uh, Daniel Craig, who's not, obviously not that Daniel Craig, but one of Edison's backers, writes to him to say, if you should tell me you should make babies by machinery, I wouldn't doubt it. It sounded like there was nothing Edison couldn't do. And these words of Craig's were actually rather prophetic because just a few years later, Edison does start making babies. This is an Edison talking doll, the very first doll um, ever invented that would speak. Um, and of course, it has a miniature phonograph inside it. Uh, and this was considered so remarkable that Scientific American actually covers it in a story in the 1890s, illustrations of the doll and its workings and how it was made, and they go into great detail. This is what it looked like. There's the miniature phonograph removed from it and so on. Um, kind of remarkable things. They made hundreds and hundreds of these a day. Uh, so they've got a big production line pictured here that churns out 500 dolls a day. But the recordings are all done on wax cylinders, and there's no way of duplicating the cylinders. So alongside the production line that's making the dolls, there is a row of young women who all sit in a little booth with a little phonograph, and they have to record the discs. So they sit there all day, every day, going, Mary had a little lamb, this fleece was white, and they would record these nursery rhymes again and again and again. You can't imagine a more tedious job. Um, but it's fascinating that, of course, the doll, being for girls, has to have a female voice, and so he has to pay women, and I bet he didn't pay them all that much, to do this. So you get this sort of sense of the robot as an image of the woman, and the women being turned into robots in the factory. The whole, the reality and the fiction blend in, in quite disturbing ways here. Let's come back to the story then, the fictional Edison. So the whole book kind of crackles with electricity and the kind of the magic of invention. And it's things like Edison doesn't answer the phone himself. He has a phonograph of his voice to answer the phone for him and things like this. So it's full of gadgets and wit. And he's kind of, he even has a, a, a thing that he speaks into to give commands. I'm like, he's already invented sort of Google Nest or whatever in the 19th century. It's really an amazing book. Anyway, one of the questions that inevitably comes up is why has Edison invented Hadley in the first place? because he'd already got the android before Ewell raises this problem with his fiancée. And Edison explains that he had this friend, Edward Anderson, a nice, handsome young man, who'd had an affair with a young woman called Evelyn Habal. And the affair ruins Anderson's life. It ruins his marriage, his business. He ends up killing himself. And Edison, there's no question in his mind that the girl is to blame for all of this. The man is utterly innocent. Men would never, ever think of having affairs if women weren't these kind of evil seductresses tempting them on every corner. We're back with the story of Eve here, obviously. Not for nothing is the story called Tomorrow's Eve. But the really kind of chilling aspect of this book, and this really is quite disturbing, is it prophesies the cinema, another Edison invention. But the book was published before the Lumiere brothers had shown their first film and long before Edison had patented his vitascope. But in the book... The fictional Edison has already invented a film, and he shows you all the film of Evelyn Habal dancing. And it's full color, again, decades ahead of actual color, and she looks absolutely stunning. But then he shows a second film of a little bloodless creature, vaguely female of gender, with dwarfish limbs, hollow cheeks, toothless jaws, with practically no lips, an almost bald skull, that's very significant, with dim and squinting eyes, flabby lids, and wrinkled features. This is also Evelyn Habal. This is what she looks like when she's removed all her artificial aids to beauty, the wig that covers her baldness and so on. And there is a, a really, frankly, horrible misogynist scene where Edison opens this drawer. Evelyn Habal is also dead by this stage. And he's got her relics. And he takes them out of the drawer and shows them to her. Her false teeth, which he plays like castanets. And her wig, which is matted and grimy. And as you can see, the, the grey wadding, bulging, grubby, and giving off a particularly rancid odour. Lots of half-used lotions and paints and perfumes. Some objects, oddly shaped, to say the least, used in the craft of rousing men to innocent transports of delight. So it's all you know, women's fault that men get turned on by sex toys, um, and certain herbs and specimens from the shops of the chemist, which show that Evelyn Habal did not feel herself destined for the joys of family life. So she has contraceptives and abortifacients and so on. And again, this is all horrifying and disgusting. And, and, and the, whole, the whole scene is kind of gruesome. It is very reminiscent of the kind of assembling the body out of the corpses in Frankenstein. It has a ghoulish quality. And it, it is just rank with the smell of hatred for women that, that is conveyed in the book. And one of the things that's going on here, this is a contemporary cartoon of, again, the you know, innocent, upright young man being tempted by a prostitute. And behind the mask, behind the makeup and everything, the prostitute is death. 
And the nameless fear that is haunting the book and, and many people in Europe is syphilis. Um, and it is, again, part of the kind of the hypocrisy of the Christian tradition that women are to blame because of their lust, because of the fall, they are the ones spreading syphilis. And it's interesting that the, the other great female malady of the period is hysteria, which relates directly to the womb. The word actually comes from the Greek word for womb. Um, and when uh, there's an extraordinary scene in the book where uh, Edison takes Hadley the android apart and demonstrates her workings to Yule, and he actually gives her a detailed instruction manual. She can even be jump-started if her battery goes down, which is kind of great, but how to maintain her, uh, and she has no reproductive organs. So the, the sources of disease um, and madness and so on, which are there in real biological women, have all been stripped out. Uh, so she's clean and electric and perfect and obedient, but also she can't reproduce. Uh, reproduction is now in the hands of the factory owner who will turn out as many ideal women as are needed. Um, and Edison says, you know, replacing real women with androids wouldn't be much of a change because real women are already artificial, a banal assemblage of powder, rouge, false teeth, false complexions, false hair, false smiles, false glances, and false pretenses of love. So why not have the android herself? A fake, a real, a really good fake, better than all those half-assed fakes that are the reality of women. So, as I say, it's it's a really disturbing, uncomfortable book. But there are so many themes in this that come out in in later stories, and it touches on things that I think are bubbling below the surface of a lot of of, of ideas about women in the period. So, let me jump forward um, to the slightly more wholesome period of early science fiction and the pulp magazines. It's one of many uh, illustrations in the period that demonstrate this notion of the fantasy woman as artificial, a robot that needs fixing when she malfunctions. And I'm just going to talk about a couple of stories that set out that vision for you. So this is Science Wonder Stories, one of the magazines founded by Hugo Gernsback. I'm sure many of you know the name Gernsback more than anyone else invents science fiction. He actually coins the term. He calls it scientifiction at first. Um, he's uh, not a great businessman. He loses control of his original magazines, and this is a new one he starts a couple of years later. And the editorial claims, rather interestingly, that um, the purpose of the thing is as much educational as entertaining. One of the many things I think Gernsback is a fascinating creature. This is Gernsback pictured wearing his isolator, which was a device he invented to help you to concentrate. And it's particularly recommended for proofreading because it's a very limited visual range. You can only see one line of type at a time. It's completely airtight and soundproof. It has an oxygen cylinder so you can breathe, uh, so there's no distracting noises. And I have to say, if Hugo Gernsback wasn't on the autism spectrum, I will eat the isolator. Um, but anyway, we come back to the editorial. He said he guaranteed to our readers that they will not get a full scientific education through the perusal of these stories. And he actually has a scientific advisory committee uh, listed on the masthead of the book. Now, I don't know what the Scientific Advisory Committee were thinking when they let this turkey through. This was in the very first issue, The Marble Virgin. And, of course, this is a retelling of the story of Pygmalion, which is first told by Ovid in The Metamorphoses, the idea of the sculptor who makes himself a perfect woman out of ivory, actually because he finds real women flawed and imperfect, and he falls in love with her and she comes to life. It's a story that's retold many, many times, obviously. But in this version by Kenny McDowd, who is a first... Um, and happily, I have to say, a last-time author. He never appeared in print again after this. Um, and there's um, a Pygmalion, just to remind you of the statue. So in the story, he's actually got a sculptor at work, a young man uh, called Will Lands, um, who makes the statue of his ideal woman out of marble. He calls the statue Naomi even while he's carving it. And he's got a neighbor called Huxhold, who is a mad scientist. Huxhold wants to buy the statue, and Lands feels his, his interest in the statue is a bit creepy and says no. So, of course, Huxhold steals it. And he places it, and this is pictured here, into his electro-dissolver cabinet, which brings it to life using Huxhole rays. So only the latest accurate science is at work here. Um, Huxhole rays, incidentally, can also completely disintegrate things as well and move them to the plane of split atoms, um, whatever that is. Um, anyway, Naomi comes to life. Uh, and runs around the studio stark naked, um, constantly kissing the sculptor with whom she's instantly in love, naturally. All she can say is, ooh, but she goes one better than Olympia in the Hoffman story. She can say, I love you, Wally, as well. <laughs> so um, this is a very promising relationship, obviously. There's an extraordinary scene where he dresses her up in the latest fashion so he can take her out, and they bump into the mad scientist Huxhold, who is more jealous than ever. Um, and, oh, sorry, let me just finish that. So uh, the, the story is told by uh, Lance as he's... he's 
the, the jealous scientist has put the girl into the, the electro-dissolver and dis dis disintegrated her and sent her to the plane of split atoms um, and has then been murdered by the sculptor for his pains and he's about to kill himself using a machine in the hope that he will rejoin his lost love. Um, and the story ends not a moment too soon with him about to turn on the machine. Um, but I think that's a kind of, there's some very obvious stereotypes going on here and you can see a very limited kind of imagination of what a perfect woman would be like is at work. You get a vaguely similar, slightly more sophisticated story, Lester Del Rey, a very well-known science fiction writer by comparison. Um, this story, Helen O'Loy, um, is about two guys, uh, Phil and Dave. Phil runs a robot repair shop, and Dave is an expert on hormones and emotions and that they're caused and so on. Sorry, the other way around. Um, and they get dissatisfied. They live together. There's actually kind of bizarre scene. They go out with these two girls who are twins. The girls don't have names in the story, but one of the girls is too demanding, so they dump them both and decide they're just going to live together, well, as you do. Um, so they, their robot housekeeper malfunctions, and she puts vanilla on the steak, so they decide they're going to build a better model themselves. So they buy the latest one, who, of course, is in a what they call a girl-modded case, um, just like the, the, um, the first model they have. And, and she's a great success. She works beautifully, but of course she has no understanding of human manners or behavior or emotions or anything like that, social conventions. So to educate her, they park her in front of the TV for the day and leave her watching soap operas and leading romances. And guess what happens when he gets home from work? She just throws herself at him, puts her arms around him, she's madly in love with him. They talk about, mm, she's malfunctioned, we should switch her off. And she says, no, no, that would be murder, and so on. And there's just a great scene where she tells Phil that she really is in love with Dave. I'm a woman, and you know how perfectly I'm made to imitate a real woman in all ways. I couldn't give him sons, but in every other way, I'd try so hard I know I'd make a good wife. And they go off and live in a distant community where nobody knows them, and the two guys collaborate to quietly age the robot so that she doesn't get stay unnaturally or implausibly young as her husband gets older, and everyone accepts them as a human couple. And the story ends with... Um, the guy dies and the robot asks to be destroyed. She wants to be dissolved in acid so that she can, like a kind of good Hindu widow, she wants to throw herself on the funeral pyre. Uh, and we learn that the narrator has never married because there was only one Helen O'Loy, only one perfect woman, and he could never find anyone to match her. So a robot uh, would be the perfect woman in every sense, not least because you know, she's so compliant and available. It, she never loses her love of cooking and homemaking, we learn in the story because uh, she never wears out. Um, and these stories, and there are lots of similar ones, are discussed by Joanna Russ, terrific science fiction writer in her own right, but also a very thoughtful critic. And she coined this lovely term in the image of women in science fiction, a great essay, intergalactic suburbia. And what she describes, I think, is very familiar if you read the stories of this period particularly. Classic SF is willing to reimagine anything and everything Everything is up for grabs except for traditional gender roles, and they stay the same. So no matter how far women move in their rocket ships or their time machines, they always end up cooking and cleaning and looking after hubby in all of these stories. And this is very characteristic of the feminism of the period. This is the classic um, feminist magazine, Spare Rib, from the period. This great slogan, you start by sinking into his arms and you end with your arms in his sink. Except if you're a robot, you probably have your arms in the sink first, but you know, the story. So there's a kind of weary and disturbing familiarity about the way these patterns get repeated over and over again in the stories. So the idea of the perfect robot wife naturally is gonna take us to our 11's book, The Stepford Wives from 1972. Um, if you don't know this, I actually recommend it. It's really actually worth reading. It's a more interesting, complex novel than I'd realized, because until I was researching this, I'd only seen the movie. The novel is actually better. Anyway, in the story, Joanna Eberhard, who is a uh, young woman from New York who's interested in feminism, is a photographer. Uh, she and her family are moving to the town of Stepford in New England. Um, and when she gets there, she's just kind of appalled by the other women in the town. They were all, the Stepford Wives, where they were like actresses in commercials, pleased with detergents and floor wax, with cleansers, shampoos and deodorants, pretty actresses, big in the bosom, small in the talent, playing suburban housewives unconvincingly, too nicely nice to be real. And they creep around. She really cannot stand them. And she begins to worry that all the women seem to gradually conform to this pattern after they've been in the town for a while. And current science is again used to frame the story and give us some sense. So we've had Edison setting the scene in, in Tomorrow's Eve. We've had Spallanzani doing it. But here we get the latest ideas on um, 
Robert Ardrey, who I talked about last time, uh, he, who argued that humans are naturally territorial and naturally violent, and that shapes our history and we can't deny it. There's a nice kind of tongue-in-cheek moment when they move to Stefan and Janice looking out at her nice big suburban house and her garden, and she says, Robert Hartree was right. I feel very territorial. Um, but there's a rather more sinister reference to contemporary science when one of the husbands is reading this book, Lionel Tiger, uh, a book called Men in Groups, uh, which is about the supposed crisis in masculinity that's been caused by feminism and the way that men no longer have spaces to themselves where they can really be men um, and how this is sapping the, the kind of moral fiber of America and um, causing everybody to become a homosexual and, and devote Democrat, God knows what, you know. So, and this is serious, you know, evolutionary psychology, um, sociobiology of the period. And interesting, it's Audrey who gets Tiger, his job as head of the Guggenheim Foundation for research into the biological bases of human nature. So again, real science is framing the story. One of the lovely things about the, the movie version, which is good, the original version, is um, this opening shot, which I really like. As the family is sitting in the station wagon waiting to go to Stepford, they see this guy carrying a mannequin, a blindfolded mannequin, through the streets of New York. And Joanna gets out and, and photographs it. And when hubby arrives to finally drive them away, the daughter says, she just saw a man carrying a naked lady. And the husband replies, that's why we're moving to Stepford. <laughs> and so you get this sense of the contemporary uh, kind of urban crisis, the kind of white flight to the suburbs and so on. The way the world is becoming more challenging and uncomfortable for, for some people particularly, it, it sets the scene rather nicely. Um, and Joanna gradually becomes convinced that the Stepford Men's Association is somehow responsible for the way the women are changing. Um, and their leader, Dale Cobra, is nicknamed Diz because he worked for Disney. And he actually made these, the animatronic robots. This is Lincoln. They had a display of these at the World Fair. But these were creepily realistic in the way that they moved. And Joanna becomes convinced that they're actually replacing the women with robots, that he's perfected the technology uh, and produced the kind of perfect robot wives to replace them. And you can see the kind of responses to not just the science of the day, but to the late um, 60s uh, social anxieties and the new social movements. So um, Betty Friedan, a real-life feminist, is name-checked in the book. She's supposed to have actually spoken to the Stepford Women's Association at one point. Um, and her book, The Feminine Mystique, which feminism obviously has many different varieties and flavors and has changed a lot since the 70s, but the critique of housework, of the sheer mindless, pointless drudgery of housework, is one of the things that's clearly animating Levin's story. So the question then is, are they robots, the women? Are they really robots? Um, and it's interesting that the Italian distributors of the film have no doubt about this. They actually call it the wives' factory. So they, you know, there's no ambiguity. And the, and the film makes it unambiguous. Yes, they really are robots. It has, I won't spoil it for you, but it has a chillingly gothic ending. But the, the novel is more ambiguous and I think a bit more interesting. One of the things I like about it is there's a scene where Joanna goes to see a psychiatrist and explains her worries. And the psychiatrist said, well, you know, the kind of women who would really want to be identified as homemakers are going to feel at home in Stepford and they, they're going to stay there. And then if the women who want to stay in Stepford are going to have to fit in if they want to stay. And women like you who don't want to be homemakers, want to have careers, will move out. And that's why it's becoming homogenous. Basically, all the women have Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> and so you either fit in. And it is just about possible in the book that Joanna's actually crazy and that there aren't any robots. And that makes the whole book actually more disconcerting and more complicated than the film. But they're both good. I recommend them. Okay, let me wrap this up um, by talking about a couple of later stories here. Um, and I want to think back to The Sandman for a second and think about this notion of femininity as a performance, which has to be done well. It comes up very explicitly in this story by C.L. Moore. And again, it's notable that C.L. Moore has to publish under her initials at the time and conceal her gender. She's Catherine Lucille Moore, um, but chose not to publish under that name. And this story, No Woman Born, is, is a fascinating story about this. It's about a world-famous dancer, so the notion of performance is absolutely front and center. In, uh, she's horribly injured in a, in a theater fire, and her whole body is burnt. And by some completely unexplained mechanism, they keep her brain alive while a scientist called Maltzer makes a new body for her. And the story is told by her manager, by John Harris, who is meeting the new Deirdre for the first time in her new body. Uh, and it's described very interestingly. It's lithe and golden and beautiful, but actually has almost no features. It has no eyes, just a kind of blue mask, um, uh, and no mouth, just kind of, but just a hint of cheekbones. Um, and actually, they've made it a little more feminine in the pictures than it's described in the story. And Harris says, and oddly enough, he did not think of the naked brain that must lie inside the metal, because 
women are not defined by their brains and their rationality, I think. Anyway, the body is made of metal rings which are held together by electromagnetism and directly controlled by the brain. And her movements are incredibly fluid and graceful. She dances not just as well as ever, but perhaps better than ever. Um, and she still has, her voice is perfect, she sings beautifully, but she has the same kind of throaty, sexy laugh she always had. And people recognize her as Deirdre straight away because of that. So she is herself in some kind of interesting ways, and she's obviously not in many others. Um, Maltzer, the scientist, insists she's imperfect. She hasn't any sex. She isn't female anymore, merely an abstraction, um, who's lost everything that made her essentially what the public wanted to which I think you want to answer, well, which public? But one of the strongest stimuli, Maltz goes on, to women of her type was the knowledge of sex competition. And you know how she sparkled when a man came into the room. All that's gone, and it was essential. So she, you know, she's defined by her sex, by her biological gender, in a very literal sense here. And Maltzer thinks that without it, she's not herself anymore. She isn't a person anymore. And Deirdre re rejects this. She rejects the men's attempts to control her, whether she's allowed to go back on the stage and resume her career. That's her decision, as far as she's concerned, and she's not going to listen to their advice on it. And she, she says, I'm not a Frankenstein monster made out of dead flesh. I'm myself, alive. You didn't create my life. You only preserved it. I'm not a robot with compulsions built into me that I have to obey. I'm free-willed and independent. And Maltza, I'm human. And it's those rights that make her human. And it's interesting that alone of the perfect women that I've discussed here, she is a, a mature, sexually confident woman before she becomes a, perf a perfect woman. All the others are kind of virgins when they're born with no previous experience. Um, part of her claim to humanity, which I find really interesting, the magnetic muscles that hold, my, hold the body into my, it's my own shape and motions will let go when the brain lets go. And there's nothing but a pile of disconnected rings. If they ever assemble it again, it won't be me. So her brain is mortal. It's just an ordinary human brain. It'll wear out. When it wears out, the body will just fall apart. The body itself won't wear out, but she's not immortal. And as she says, I like that, John, she said. And he felt from behind the mask a searching of his face. So mortality, perhaps, is one of the things that makes us human. That seems to be part of the, the argument that Deirdre makes. The other story that I'm going to finish with is this one, The Girl Who Was Plugged In by James Tiptree, Jr., and it's the story of a character called P. Burke, Philadelphia Burke, but she's always just called P, who's described in really very uncompromising terms as the ugly of the world, a tall monument to pituitary dystrophy. She's really unpleasant. And because she's rejected by people and considered so ugly, she tries to kill herself. Uh, public suicide is an offense, and she's arrested and put in hospital. And then she's approached by this corporation, Global Transmissions, who've taken an interest in her because her compu their computers, who scan the hospitals, have detected unusual brainwave activity in her. And they think that she would be an ideal remote, as they're called. That is, her brain would control a flesh and blood android called Deirdre, which they've made, but the artificial android has no brain or personality of its own, so it needs a human being to actually operate it. And one of the fabulous things about this story is it's set in a future where all advertising has been banned, and the way companies get around this is that they have people who are young and glamorous and beautiful and appear on a kind of non-stop reality TV show, except you can feel and experience their emotions and sensations, and they're surrounded by glamorous products, and they're endlessly drinking the glamorous products or eating them or wearing them or whatever. So they're YouTube influences, you know, decades before the internet existed in anything like its modern form has already been thought through here. And she's trained to make the most of her skills, how to walk, to sit, to eat, to blow her nose, how to stumble, to urinate, to hiccup deliciously, how to make every nose blow or shrug delightfully subtly different from any ever spooled before, because everyone is getting all these sensations when they plug into her. And she needs implants to be able to do this. And here is our girl. The narrative voice of the story is fabulous and really interesting. Here is our girl looking, if possible, worse than before, you thought this was Cinderella, transistorized? The disimprovement in her looks come from the electrojacks peeping out of her sparse hair, and there are other meldings of flesh and metal. And she becomes an increasingly grotesque figure. Um, and one of the things that happens is she, she falls in love with the Delphi body and the life that she lives on screen and, and wants her actual body to die so that she can be permanently the other one, which isn't physically possible, but she believes that if she hopes for it enough, it'll come to pass. Um, and it's, it's a kind of really complicated tragic figure. So the she becomes increasingly kind of blodgy and kind of metal and horrible. Meanwhile, this is what the spoolers experience. 
Delphi is the darlingest girl child you've ever seen. She quivers, porno for angels. Uh, so she becomes a huge star while Burke is kind of rotting away in this kind of tomb. Now, I'm not going to tell you the end of the story because I want you to read it for yourself, but let me just tell you something about when it was published. So it's in this anthology, Warm World's another good collection of Tiptree's work, and Robert Silverberg wrote an introduction for this. It has been suggested that Tiptree is female. Now, this is a great mystery because Tiptree never appeared in public, never went to conventions, never gave interviews, so there was some speculation about who Tiptree was. I find that theory absurd. There is, for me, something ineluctably masculine about Tiptree's writing. I don't think the novels of Jane Austen could have been written by a man, nor the stories of Ernest Hemingway by a woman. And the same way, I believe the author of the James Tiptree stories is male. Well, be careful how certain you are in your diagnosis. This is James Tiptree, Jr., Alice Hastings Bradley Sheldon, 1915, um, who was not just a feminist science fiction writer who wrote as a man, but also a CIA agent. I always think if she hadn't existed that you know, literary types would have had to invent her because she makes so many interesting arguments kind of in her own person. Anyway, she's accidentally revealed to be a man in 1977 because she's mentioned, Tiptree has mentioned his mother and when his mother dies, we learn, everybody learns that his mother had no sons and that's how um, the identity is revealed. The name incidentally comes from Tiptree's Marmalade. If you're a Marmalade fan, she literally got it off the back of a marmalade jar and thought, Tiptree, that's a good name. Um, anyway, to his great credit, when the book is republished in his second edition, Silverberg kept the original intro after um, Tiptree's gender was actually known, and he admitted that it had forced him to rethink his own assumptions. Tiptree called into question the entire notion of what is masculine or feminine in fiction, and I'm still wrestling with that. And I, I have to say I rather admire him for not just ditching the intro and writing a new one. And one of the many things I found fascinating about this story and about the Tiptree Sheldon kind of persona is that Alice Sheldon herself made the link between this story, the girl who was plugged in, and herself. And so she was an old lady in Virginia. She was born in 1915, so she's really quite an old lady by the time the story comes out. And she, like P. Burke in the story, has a body that's unacceptable socially. It's, it's unacceptable that she be a woman in the masculine-dominated world of science fiction and science fiction fandom. And so Tiptree is Delphi, the, the android, the acceptable body, the acceptable persona who can appear in public and take her place. And I think it's fascinating that she thinks of it in those terms, again, as performance, as something that you inhabit a persona, you inhabit a gender, you, make, you play with it, uh, and you make it work for you, I, I think is one of the many fascinating ideas that comes out of these stories. One of the things I like to do is have a brief mention of something recent and not tell you anything about it except recommend it. If you find these topics interesting and you haven't seen this episode of Black Mirror, go for it. It's worth it just for Miley Cyrus's performance, but it's a great story. Uh, and if you haven't seen any of Black Mirror, you're missing one of the best TV shows of recent decades. Okay, so to conclude this, this is an advert for women's underwear from the 50s. Be a living doll. It kind of captures the whole argument of, of the way femininity is constructed in these stories, I think. Um, one of the things I love about Tomorrow's Eve, despite the fact that many aspects of it are really disturbing and creepy, is that it opens up themes that more respectable authors and more mainstream authors wouldn't touch on. So Hadley, when she you know, is finally revealed to you all, she's been turned into Alicia and he falls in love with her, and she says, I have so many women in me, no harem could contain them all. And you know, this is obviously this is a family show. I'm not going to go into the possible uses of a very realistic female um, android, but it's hinted at in these stories uh, and in a way that I find you know, opens up some of those issues about ideals and so on quite interestingly. The other thing about it is that Edison, when he explains his work, says the present gorgeous little fool will no longer be a woman, but an angel, no longer a mistress, but a lover, no longer reality, but the ideal. And there's the, the kind of ghost of Plato haunting the story, the ideal, the absolute perfect form of woman will be embodied in the android. And because the power of reproduction has been taken away from women, she has no reproductive organs, she can't reproduce herself, the man can then churn out as many copies of the ideal as there is demand for in the marketplace. So there's all kinds of complex, disturbing ideas bubbling along in this story. And that, I think, is the kind of, you know, the wives' factory. You can see the echoes of many later stories back there in Tomorrow's Eve. So I want to leave us with the thought that gender is a masquerade. It's a performance, and it has to be kept up. 
men become men by acting like men and doing the things that it's acceptable for men to do, like write science fiction stories about robot women. Um, and women play the same game. They inhabit femininity according to the standards of their society. And that's kind of what Wilson Craft is getting at, how are we socialized into these roles. It's not the biology that determines who you are in these stories, and that I find an interesting and potentially kind of liberating idea. And I think all of them, by thinking about gender as a performance, people like Hoffman and more women like Moore and Tiptree, are suggesting that the question of women and human is much more interesting than just saying yes. Interesting, Wollstonecraft doesn't just say yes, she says not yet, which I think is a kind of interesting response. And I think what all these stories made me think, and the thing I'd, I'd like to leave you with, is if we ask, if we think about femininity in those terms, then we have to think about why we want to define women and human. Why does society keep coming back to these questions? Why do we keep thinking about the opposite of splitting things into you're this or that, you're male, you're female, you're black or you're white, and so on? What, is it, what does it tell us about us and about the kind of philosophical and intellectual traditions that science fiction has inherited and many of us have inherited through these different paths? that we keep coming back to those questions. Okay, I'll take a break there. Thank you all very much for listening. The first one is, this may be touched on more during your robots lecture, but what are your thoughts on the disembodied voice AI on spaceships or in the modern world, Alexa or Siri, that are often feminine voices in science fiction? Watch the space. That's one of the topics for next time. I haven't written that one yet, so I don't know what I'm gonna say about it, but it is fascinating. Uh, and there are so many of them, and it is, it is interesting the various ways in which those roles become female. One of my favorite things about Galaxy Quest, again, you haven't seen Galaxy Quest, you're really missing a treat. Brilliant parody of Star Trek, but Sigourney Weaver's character, her job, she's the kind of version of uh, Lieutenant Uhura, her job is to repeat what the computer says. Uh, and translated into a feminine tone, which is kind of fascinating, and, and she complains bitterly about it. But it is something that's, that that is, does fascinate me, and I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say about that one. But thank you for it. Okay. Raising um, it. How much of the uh, how much is the original novel Frankenstein science fiction? How much of it is just fiction or fantasy? I seem to recall that the means of the monster's creation is glossed over in a paragraph or two, which vaguely implies dead bodies were involved, but not exactly how. Yeah. It, it's light on the science. And I, I personally wouldn't call it science fiction, but I think the kind of question of what is really science fiction is one of the most arid and tedious questions around. So I don't really want to spend very much time on it. But I do think that what I like about Roger Luckhurst's definition about the conditions of emergence is about the historical period when these things become interesting. And one of the arguments he makes, which I find very plausible, is that as the world becomes filled up with science and it begins to intrude on our everyday lives in lots of ways and we become much more aware of it, we begin to tell ourselves stories, a kind of modern mythology about science and its impacts. And science fiction is the key example of that. It's not the only one. So I would say that, that Frankenstein is leading towards science fiction. It's not quite yet science fiction. But the, the best definition of science fiction I know is one of the, I've forgotten who it was, one of the science fiction writers said, science fiction is what people who know about science fiction point to when they say that's science fiction. And, and that's about as good a definition as you can really have. But I will come back to that in a later lecture. What is science fiction? Does it matter? Hi, hi. Going back to Edison and the talking doll, I was thinking of the relationship of the Barbie doll, which is kind of infiltrated, and there's still that education of the perfect girl and how to behave. And I was wondering what your thoughts are. Apart from that, there's nothing more evil that Klaus Barbie ever did than invent the Barbie doll. No, seriously, um, they are the most grotesque and horrible objects. It's one of my great pride and pleasure as a father of a daughter that she never wanted one and never showed any interest in them. Um, but there is actually a, uh, a very weird story called The Barbie Murders, a science fiction story that I recommend very highly. I'm, I'm blanking on the author's name, but um, it's worth... There can't be two stories with that title. Um, it, 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 that notion of the, rep, the replicable doll and conforming to a very limited kind of stereotype is, is quite fascinating. And I, I think one of the richest, most interesting kind of places to look for science fiction and gender is, of course, the Toy Story movies. So the Barbie is one of the best characters in, in Toy Story. I love the way she's so... She smiles so much she hurts and so on, and the way she conforms to the stereotypes so perfectly. But the other doll is the, in the fourth movie is, is, is Gabby, Gabby Gabby who is a talking doll, very like the Edison talking dolls, 
and her string's broken. She can't talk anymore. And she has evil plans, evil designs on Woody to steal his voice box and his strings so she can get her voice back. So the, the doll who, you know, who just smiles all the time and conforms is one version of the ideal. The doll who can talk, but you get to choose when they talk and how much they talk by pulling their string. There are various ways in which all these stereotypes actually come up in the Toy Story movies and so on. So yeah, I find Barbie's very, very sinister and disturbing. Uh, and of course, their complete lack of genitalia obviously would be age inappropriate, but it also adds to that weird, that, you know, they've been, their ability to reproduce and all the kind of negative associations of that are, is all stripped out as well, which is a strange continuity too. I really am sorry. I think we've, we've just about reached the end of our time oh. here. But if you do have um, a question, burning question, that you're dying to have answered, you could come up at the end and ask the professor. Yes, please do. Yeah, but thank you so sorry much. Sorry for the long answers. We could have got more questions in. But thank you so much for listening. <laughs> thank you very much.